The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Rav Daliwal to the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan. Rav is a venture partner at Crane venture partners. His venture career follows 20 years of leadership positions in hyper-growth enterprise software ventures like Slack, Zendesk, and Yammer. So, Rav, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Gary, and uh, it's great to be here and um, really looking forward to the conversation. So, Rav, why did you decide to leave the world of startups and scale-ups, leadership roles inside successful SaaS ventures for the world of VC? Interesting. Yeah, I, I get asked this question every once in a while. And for me, it felt like a very natural progression. If you think about what a, a good investor is trying to do, I think a good investor is trying to deploy or sell capital, right? And so I've gone from selling software to selling capital. And a really good investor is trying to coach, nurture, develop the companies they're investing in to deploy and use that capital successfully to achieve their business outcomes. So it felt like a very natural transition, a very familiar transition in, in lots of ways. But I think personally, from a just a career and, and personal interest perspective, what I was really wanting to do was to get exposure to a, a very wide and different array of types of companies and technologies and solutions. So you mentioned, obviously, the work I do at Crane. we very, very focused on what's referred to as deep tech, which lends itself to things like AI, machine learning, security-type products. These are areas that I think on a day-to-day -day basis I wouldn't have had much exposure to. But I think outside of that, more, more importantly for me was working with companies sort of in a different context and early enough that you could actually really share your experience and your learning to influence positive change sometimes where the business is still in the kind of forming stage and uh, the ability to have that sort of mind share. So those were kind of the appeals to me. And I, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I have been disappointed by both the exposure I've had in terms of different types of companies and also the ability to, to work with founders and, uh, and executive teams and uh, sharing and learning that experience. They're largely all really open to it and absorbing it. How have the pandemic lockdowns influence the issues that your portfolio companies are struggling with? And, uh, and I think across different types of, of businesses, I think like uh, a lot of funds, some companies in the portfolio uh, are actually incredibly well placed, never been busier. Some have got challenges because the nature of their solution offering been disproportionately impacted. So a lot of what I've been doing, a lot of what the partners in the firm have been doing is helping portfolio companies plan. So Let's work on the basis that sales are probably going to be, at least for the rest of the year, challenging. How do we send a runway in a sensible, meaningful way? How do we look at the prioritization of expenditure in, in such a way that we're not filling the business in any way, but we're extending that runway? So it's also been really interesting in one key pattern across all of the companies that I get to work with is they're all very customer focused, but I think the key understanding now of just how important the functions are that actually work directly with customers and doubling down in those areas 
has suddenly risen to incredibly high prominence. So it's always important, but I think the understanding that actually if we're going to weather materially large shock like this, we need to work even harder on uh, engaging with and, keep, and keeping uh, our existing customers. And I think that's been a, a really common pattern. You've had huge success building customer success functions in B2B SaaS scale-ups. And one of your personal mantras, especially relevant for B2B SaaS, is that success is everyone's business. Uh, indeed, there's no such thing, in your opinion, as post-sales. What are the issues you've seen with the traditional go-to-market model that clearly differentiates between pre- and post-sales metrics? That's a really uh, terrific uh, question there. And I'm actually in the middle of uh, writing a Medium post and this whole idea of there no, being no such thing as post-sales. Some of the traditional challenges really stem for historical reasons. So you go way back, companies are organized a certain way for uh, historical reasons. But if we were to kind of look through the software industry in particular, much of the organizational structures we have are kind of legacies from the on-premises software days, right? So we would build the software, it would take us three years, we would physically ship it to people who bought it, and then they had to make significant capital expenditure in terms of things like servers and racks and data centers and administrators, et cetera. So the emphasis on whether they were being successful or achieving their business outcomes with the software was far less important than the simple mechanics of actually getting the solution up and running and delivered. And in the old days, especially some of the more complex middleware type software, this could be months or years, you know, just on the deployment. So structures that a lot of companies are dealing with now in a sort of SaaS subscription world are very heavily influenced by that older model. And so when you start to introduce structure where there's a very hard delineation or very strict line between pre and post sales, but you're not an on-premises solution, you're a subscription-based solution, that actually introduces quite a lot of challenges and introduce a lot of challenges in terms of things like gross and net revenue retention, the satisfaction and NPS and those kinds of areas. Because if you're working in that structure, then you're typically having some kind of very hard handover from the sales process to the non-sales process that's going to then work with the customer. Handovers, by and large, are really poor experience for the customer. Uh, they'll often ask to spend time going over things again. It's not uncommon to have to resell the solution to a new set of people because of that sort of hard transition. And also just internally, there's a lot of internal effort and orchestration and overhead for all the parties involved. So those are just some of the, the challenges that can arise if you um, get an organization with a mindset of, you know, there's pre and post sales, you're a subscription business, you know, I think a better way and a healthier way to think about it and to organize is, well, we've closed the first sale, how do we close the next sale? And then the next sale and the next sale. So how do we create the conditions for future sales with the same customer. Uh, and that's where a lot of the work that I do has been sort of focused on in helping people think through from a organizational, uh, functional, uh, organizational alignment, measures, metrics, incentives perspective. So clearly organizational structures are outmoded, mostly back to the uh, industrial revolution and the handover between sales and customer success. Just like in a relay race, 
is absolutely crucial. How should a SaaS CEO design their organization and their handover processes so that long-term customer success drives everyone's behavior? It's a terrific uh, question. And I think the fundamental way I would answer that question is by trying to build both a culture and organization and an incentive structure where you don't have any handovers. So the best way to avoid handovers is to not have any. So I think a practical way to maybe think about that is, you know, you have, you, or the way I like to describe it is if you view your SaaS sales motion as a three-legged stool, the seat of the stool is the customer. There's one leg, which is a commercial leg. I have BDRs, SDRs, AEs. Their job is to qualify opportunities, understand the business problems and so on. And they are often supported by a technical leg, which is uh, you know, maybe a solutions engineer. They're there to help the customers while the commercial fit's being validated. They're trying to validate the technical fit. Does the solution meet not only functionally what the customer needs, but will it meet their you know, security compliance regulatory requirements? And I would be advising founders and leaders of companies to think about is you need that third leg, right? And the third leg is the value leg. It's the deployment, the adoption leg. How are you setting the customer up in the first sales cycle, qualifying all three of those things? Because some of the problems can be is that fundamentally boil down to the person that you sell to is by and large not, it's very rarely the person that's either going to be involved in making the service available internally or even potentially even using the service. That can, that's often a different set of people. So easy kind of solution to that is, you know, as part of your go-to-market motion, build the of your success team or deployment team or whatever you call it as part of your pitch. You know, it's a differentiator as part of your pitch. And then within that sales cycle, somewhere around the sort of the middle or towards the half of the sales cycle where you've established, you know, we have commercial alignment, commercial fit. We just need to negotiate or we're going to negotiate. We're on the way to or have proved the technical fit. That's the point to start introducing value or deployment fit. So, hey, we're going to bring in the team that you're going to be working with. They, they're going to paint a picture for you of what uh, it's going to look like, what we're going to bring to the table, what you need to bring to the table. And they can then start to qualify what's the customer's propensity for being successful. Have they got the right skills in place? Are they going to make the right commitment to work with us? Our executive sponsor be available to during the, the solution. Uh, and that can be a very, very effective way to not only set yourself up for having very fast value, but actually laying the groundwork for the next commercial deal that you want to do, that customer, and avoiding a handover because you've started to introduce people they're going to be working with in a kind of a more of a natural, organic way for the deal. In that phase where you know the deal's happening, you're just orchestrating the logistics. And that is something that I've worked on very hard in trying to drive into some companies I've worked in, but also the companies that I work with. And where it does work, especially if you have aligned the incentive structure between all the party sales, solutions engineering, and success in the right way, it's super effective. It can be a really great experience for the customer, but it's also a really great way of setting yourself up to maximize more revenue in the future. How should a SaaS CEO design their organization? and their handover processes so that long-term customer success drives everyone's behavior? 
And I think you've hit on a key thing there, Gary, which is the behavioral aspect. So you can have a perfectly aligned organizational structure, even align the incentives, but if the behavioral impetus isn't there, you're going to have somebody who's thinking not beyond just closing the deal. That's it. My, my, my view of the world is the next six to 12 weeks. People whose view of the world is maybe 12 months or 24 months. There's not a behavioral shift there. Then you're in a challenge. And that's why so much of this, the success of this is dependent on the leadership, right? So the message of, I don't want to just sell this customer one thing. I want to sell them five things over three years. And I want you to think that way. It's key driving the overall success of this, as is, as you mentioned, the alignment structure. So here's a very practical example that I've seen work well in some companies. You know that there are certain characteristics of the product, which if the customer is uh, either consuming the system at a certain capacity or they're utilizing certain key functions, they correlate very heavily to the customer seeing sort of end business value or ROI from the solution. There's nothing stopping you in sending both your success and sales teams hitting that target. Now, the ratio of how you incent them would be different. I guess from the success team, a big portion of their incentive structure should be on getting customers to that point very quickly. But you can make a 2 3 4% portion of a salesperson's comp based on that too. So it's not the primary way they're compensated, but it's material enough that there's an incentive for me to say, well, actually, I need to think about when I bring in my other resources, how I position them, how I work with them, how they work with me. And conversely, from a S perspective, making part of the compensation, that alignment and showing how you have helped to influence and close deals. So it is possible to do if you think it through in a meaningful way. And if you layer that on with you know, the leadership messaging, the thing that I've seen that's really effective is a lot of sales teams use application things like Medic or MedPick. And some sales leaders go and, and some SaaS leaders go, well, let's put an S on the end. You know, we're doing our qualification. The S is success. How are we setting this customer up for success? What's the plan for that in the deal, right? That could be, well, we're going to introduce you to the success team to talk about deployment or we're going to bring in a partner or whatever it is. It's just making it part of the, the thinking and the incentive structure. Finding that CROs and chief commercial officers are responsive to this approach? A lot of this has to do with the stage the company is at. So French partner at Crane, we're a very early stage fund. So you know, we invest and work with companies that are that journey from product market to go-to-market fit. What you tend to see there is far more receptiveness to these kinds of ideas because they're building the machine. The machine is kind of quite large, well established from a cultural organization and incentives perspective. Then the impact of changing anything, regardless of what it is, is that much harder. So then it actually becomes much more heavily correlated to what's the first hand experience of the, the levels of leaders involved, the sales leaders, the CROs, et cetera. What's the influence of the customer officer, if there is one? the board and the outside advisors saying so a lot of that i think really depends on stage at which company is in uh, or where they are on that journey of that between go to market and product for product market and go to market bit the messages and the influence they're getting but certainly my experience has been you know at that earlier stage much more openness much more openness to 
and receptiveness to do that because the impact of any changes is the outcome of those changes may be really positive. The impact in implementing them is much lower. What are the two biggest mistakes you've made as a business leader? What lessons have you learned? So, really good question. And I think also now, not necessarily being on the day-to-day operation side, it's a afforded me a little bit of an opportunity to, to sit back and think and, and reflect. And one of the key things that really springs to mind is sort of learnings and mistakes around people and specifically around hiring. And I think kind of described it as saying, whenever I have for some reason optimized for hiring fast over hiring well, that's never particularly worked out well for all sorts of reasons, whether that's been reasons or just kind of impact on the team from a cultural perspective or a combination of things you always have this push-pull especially in a fast-growing environment between they're under-resourced we need the resource this person fits the bill maybe then not doubling down on thinking well is there a, a behavioral and cultural fit here that we have dived into as much as the competency fit so I have an engineering background my wife says you know I have a mechanical brain, that's how she describes it. So for, uh, especially in the earlier parts of my career, when I was in my early stages of being a leader, hiring for competency fit and building, hiring and interview frameworks around that was all I ever thought about. And through mentoring from some of my bosses and leaders that I've worked with, I've come to understand actually that building a hiring process that actually focuses as much, if not more, on behavior and patterns of behavior and, and cultural alignment is actually a bigger determinant for success, past and present behavior, was competency fit. Because most competency things you can largely teach people. So it's not either or, it's both. But I think the biggest sort of mistakes that I've made or mixed learnings that I've had around that people area is prioritizing that hiring fast for competency rather, rather than taking a more holistic approach and, and looking at behavior. That certainly is one that definitely springs to mind as a as a pattern, especially in the earlier part of my career. And then I think something, it's less of a mistake, but more of a kind of learning for me, and we've touched on it uh, several times already in our conversation, Gary, is I wish I had cottoned on to the fact that actually what's really the key core skill or the core functional skill that I think I would have needed, and I think most leaders do need, especially founders, is this idea of understanding change management. So change management is all about behaviors. I think that's the easiest way to contrast it with something like project management, which is about tasks. Change management is about delivering tasks. Change management is how do you deliver behavior change. And if you think about what you're doing as a founder or a co-founder or any leadership position, especially in a fast-growing startup, is you're trying to, every day, you're trying to adapt, absorb, and manage a continual stream of change. And so not understanding the best ways to do that or not having a techniques or learnings, skills in managing that, I think is something that's very underappreciated. And I think it's something that I've definitely learned to invest in over the years because it's helped hopefully make me a, a leader. And I think those are the two things that really, really kind of leap out to me, areas where made a lot of mistakes and, and hopefully learn from. How do you build hiring processes that enable you holistically to understand the behavior of individuals before they join your team? 
think one of the best processes, and, and I can't claim credit for this, this is I think I was introduced to by a mentor of mine and something that I've seen work incredibly well. Really good process centered around, there's a book centered around that I certainly would be happy to recommend to anyone listening. It's called Who? It's actually uh, how to hire, you know, A players, how to hire top talent. And it sounds very mechanical, but it actually really helps to get under the skin of behavioral traits. And the whole idea behind it is you take any role that you're hiring for, you deconstruct that role into actually a scorecard, like a core essence of what, why the role exists, what it's for, what good looks like. And then you deconstruct it further into a set of maybe seven, eight attributes that correlate very strongly to people who are successful in the role. And then what that allows you to do is to build a question framework and a question framework. There's work involved in putting this together. It's a, it's a proper project that takes a bit of time, but the payoff is huge. That question bank lets you then be very systematic about how you progress people through that process because you're not only asking them or, or delving into their competency fit, but you're asking them into behavioral things. So, you know, simply let's say from a sales perspective, let's say from hiring salespeople, resilience is a really strong behavioral trait that you want in good salespeople. With grit, you know, some grit determination, you're going to have a lot of knockbacks, closing deals. You want people who can learn from that, pick themselves up and, and move on. So if you have identified that in a scorecard as an attribute that you're looking for, you can build questions around that. Tell me about a time where, you know, you completely failed at something and how you dealt with it and what you learned from it, right? And then you can then build a pattern of what good and bad answers look like. As you work through that process, I think one of the most valuable parts of that process is actually going through someone's career history. And this is, you know, a significant chunk of time, but again, I think it's worth it. You and another leader, it's really, I think, in an in-depth interview, it's very difficult for one person to run the interview, absorb everything and take the notes. So having sort of two people part of that process going reverse chronological through somebody's work history and, you know, essentially asking them the same series of questions per job. What were your responsibilities in the role? What were the areas of development you were working on with your boss? Why did you leave? You can frame the repetition with the candidate, that pattern is incredibly revealing, these four, five, six questions you ask about each job around how people will likely or not likely fit from a cultural and behavioral perspective. So I think taking that approach, it's uh, you know, work up front, it's pretty systematic. But if you're in a fast growing organization, having a structure like that to hang your hat on really does, not foolproof, no system is foolproof, but it really does actually maximize the chance of hiring people who not only have a really strong competency fit, but they have a strong behavioral and cultural alignment that will let them be successful in the world. Rev, what are some of your favorite business books and what lessons do they have that are relevant to businesses struggling with the unprecedented challenges of 2020? It's a great Question, actually. There's, there's two that really spring to mind. I think the first book that I keep coming back to is an interesting one because it's actually so much to do with, obviously, just my personal interest. I'm a huge cinephile, always have been. A gentleman called Mike Ovitz, who was an incredibly powerful Hollywood agent. He created an organization called CAA, which was 
generally regarded as the most powerful agency in Hollywood. His book, who is Mike Kovitz, his bio, autobiography, been a great read, not only from a, a, my personal interest, but from a business perspective, because Mike actually, when he left Hollywood, went to Silicon Valley and an investor. And actually, I think he, he's been an advisor and mentor to people like Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. And I think he brought this notion of, in Hollywood, of being a full service agency. So you don't just get an agent, you get access to uh, you know, my TV people, my movie people, my music people, my publishers, et cetera. So it's a full suite of offerings that we give you. And I think he was very instrumental in bringing that idea into the venture space of being, a, if you like, a full service fund, that we have operators, we have comms people, we have all these other facets that can help you build a business. So I think that's been a fascinating read for me, both just personally and professionally. I think the business book that I keep coming back to Various reasons is uh, is a book by General Stanley McChrystal, Team of Teams, and it's uh, in the book. McChrystal kind of talks about his experience of fighting the counterinsurgency war in Afghanistan. So it's historically, it's just very, very interesting. But his real insight was, you know, I'm in this highly organized, well trained, disciplined, resourced machine that is the US military and we are losing against pre-trained, pre-equipped, loosely networked organization. And his real insight was actually we need to alter our organizational structure. And this goes back to what we were talking before about Gary about alignment and organization. Actually the key to, to driving success is actually communicating the transparency of communication. So having people aligned is so very heavily correlated with having transparent communications. He calls it shared consciousness. How do you develop a shared consciousness in an organization? So how do we transform ourselves from this big hierarchical structured organization into a network? Because a network is the best way to defeat another network. And it's such an interesting take on this because it speaks a lot about leadership. It speaks a lot about organizational structure. It speaks along the, the value of communication. And it really hit home for me that a lot of these challenges that businesses have is, and you touched on it earlier, uh, I think at the beginning of the conversation, Gary, it's to do with the historical structure of organizations, which is the org chart. And that is an industrial era structure designed for efficiency, predictability, and reliability. And the individual in that org chart not need to know the big picture. They need to know just how to do their little slice of the big picture. But work has changed dramatically since then. Work is much more ad hoc in nature. It's much more cross-functional. It's much more knowledge-based. And so trying to do that kind of work in an industrial era structure is where a lot of challenges, I think, lie, especially in fast-growing companies. And the book, it provides a really great framing and a really great insight to that. And, and, and that's why it's, it's a book I've come back to periodically time and time again. So in a sense, the premise of that book in terms of organizational structure and communications, how those need to change, is directly relevant to the certain times that we're all facing. Sure, and I think I would summarize it if I could try to summarize the entire sort of what I took from the book, if nothing else, is that it's that the people closest to a problem generally have the best solution. Right. So if you have a mechanism to solicit that or share that or to bubble that around the organization, 
you're going to be able to be much more adaptable. And I think that's really in our current climate. It's the businesses that are able to adapt, adapt quickly, that are likely to weather storm and the, the economic uncertainty a lot better. Do all that phrase, the people closest to the problem generally have the best solution. I'm yeah. make, making a note of that. And I think that's, uh, that's going to be the title for this episode. Sounds really obvious, but if you think about any kind of business, small or large, so busy doing stuff, you're, you know, you're building the plane while you're trying to fly it, it can be really easy to not stop for a minute and think, well, actually, who's closest to this problem? Maybe we should go and talk to them. And that's why, actually, from a sales perspective, success perspective, not thinking about pre and post sales just to kind of tie it back is super important because you have a hard line. The sales team is looking at the problem from the perspective of how do we overcome this problem to get this deal closed? That's their job. The success team is thinking, how do we look at this problem to get this customer to see value quickly? And so they'll continue to see value and we'll sell them more. If you're doing that in two sort of very separate um, modes, not kind of lined up, then you're introducing all sorts of friction, both for you and for, and for the customer. So thinking about not decoupling those and having a, a, a CSP a part of the sales motion, that third leg I spoke about, is a really good way to adapt because you are, uh, from an organizational perspective, hopefully have that shared transparency, that shared consciousness, that communications, where if there are shocks, if the customers are, are telling you something different, no matter the context, you're internally you're much more aligned and you can absorb that and adapt a lot quicker brilliant that's great rav thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode some really thought-provoking ideas there and uh, yeah a lot for me and uh, our listeners to uh, reflect on no it's it, it, it's it's my pleasure and we i think we talked about some really specific tactical things we talked about some real strategic things and if there's one thing i would sort of want to leave everybody with is you know from a SaaS perspective from we've talked about all these things it really just boils down to this how you treat people who want to use your product versus people who have been told to use your product is two different problems and try to keep that in mind from both a sales success alignment incentives perspective you need to cater for the people who've been told to use your product not, not just the people who want to use it because they're typically the people who are going to buy it I think that's one of the biggest learnings I've, I, I, I've learned and something that I think I'd like to leave everybody with. A great final thought. Okay, <laughs> looking forward to hearing how you and the portfolio are uh, implementing some of these ideas on structure and communication and, and process. And uh, hopefully we'll see especially some of the younger businesses emerging with a whole different perspective on how to uh, engage with the market and maybe one or two unicorns, if we're allowed to use that phrase, <laughs> will emerge the chaos of 2020 to being yeah, indeed. The, indeed. The, the superstars of 2025 and beyond. Indeed. And uh, thanks again, uh, Gary, for inviting me on. It's been a real pleasure. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.